going to read God's word, which uh, today is Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed, because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. This is God's word. Good morning, everyone, and it'll be great if you keep your Bibles open at Titus chapter 2. If we've not met before, my name's James. I work on the staff team here. Um, It'd be lovely to talk to you afterwards. But let's pray then as we come to God's word together. Father God, thank you so much that you have given us these words to show us how you want your church to live so that we might make Jesus look attractive, beautiful to the outside world watching. Please would you help us and be at work to change us this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, earlier this year, um, uh, there was a survey released called the the Talking Jesus Survey of 2022. So they'd gone around and surveyed about 4,000 or so people around the UK and trying to find out what people's attitudes are towards Jesus and towards the Christian faith. And they're particularly interested to find out what people who are not Christians or not practicing Christians think about Jesus. Um, Did you know that about 53% of people um, who aren't Christians know someone who is a practicing Christian, which gave them a chance to ask some questions about, well, what's your view of people who are Christians? And there are a couple of questions that particularly stood out as intriguing, I thought, for this morning. Um, So here's one of them. Hopefully, it'll come up on the screen. This is, how how does someone who's not a Christian describe the Christian that they know? And hopefully you can see that it's kind of overwhelmingly positive. So there's lots of positive character traits that hit the the biggest percentages. So kind of caring, friendly, good-humored, generous. They all sort of hit reasonably big percentages and much smaller all the negative characteristics, hypocritical, unhappy, those sorts of things. So overwhelmingly, it seems that, that people who aren't Christians find the Christians that they know, their friends, their family, their colleagues, to be nice people, I guess. But it's a bit more mixed when the question was changed. So when the question was changed to this, how do non-Christians describe the church? Suddenly, it's it's a lot more mixed. So all the the negative characteristics suddenly become a bit bigger. So the church is hypocritical, narrow-minded, homophobic, naive, and the the caring, friendly, encouraging sort of those sorts of ones is a bit more. It's a bit more mixed. So it seems like people like the Christians they know, but the church. not so much. Now, I don't know if that rings true to, to your experience, if you're here and wouldn't call yourself a, a Christian, but that, that's what the, the survey found, is it surveyed th- thousands of people across the UK. Individual Christians, we like them, but the church, a bit more mixed. 
And as we come to, to the book of Titus this morning, thinking about how a church can be spiritually healthy, the big point we're going to see is actually how Christians live our daily lives in our workplaces, in our schools, in our families, with our friends. How, how we live is going to have a big impact upon what people generally think about Jesus. So we don't, hopefully, we just have individual Christians who, who are nice and attractive, in a sense, in how they live. But the whole church, rather than being mixed, can actually live out the gospel. And as chapter 2, verse 10 says, make the teaching about God our Savior to be attractive. That is the big point this morning. How we live will have a big impact on making the teaching about Jesus attractive. Now, if you're joining us this week for the first time, this is the third week looking through this little letter in the book of Titus in the Bible. The main theme, as I've said, is spiritual health. Um, You might remember Paul had been planting churches on the island of Crete in in early 60s AD. He's had to leave, and these sort of churches that have just been started, they're a bit unfinished, a bit disordered. And so he's left Titus behind to kind of bring these churches to spiritual health so that the churches reflect the teaching of Jesus and live that out in their lives. So chapter one, which we saw last week, we thought about spiritual health in the church community. Then chapter two this week, we're thinking about spiritual health Yes, in family life, in our workplaces. And then chapter three, next time, we'll see spiritual health within the wider society. And if you just look down at chapter one, verse one, you'll see the key principle that's at work in the letter, which is that it's the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. That is, all of our life being committed to God in practice, if we want that to happen, it's vital we're consuming a healthy diet of God's truth revealed to us in the Bible. If the truth is going in, then we'll be able to live out lives that are godly. And so we come this morning then to chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, thinking about spiritual health in, I guess, our our daily lives in family life, workplace, schools, that sort of thing. And as we read through it a moment ago, you you might have noticed there's sort of basically five lists, lists of lots of different characteristics that Paul wants different people in the churches to exhibit. Now, I'm sure it would be useful for us to kind of work through every one of those words in detail and say, okay, so what does temperate mean and what does worthy of respect and kind of go through them all. But it would take a while. And I think actually, more helpfully, there's three big themes in these 10 verses that would be really helpful for us as a church to look at. So we're kind of thinking big picture, three big themes running through these 10 verses. There should be an outline on on your sheets, and we'll look at it like this. Spiritual health is a team effort. Spiritual health is applied to our circumstances, and spiritual health is to make Jesus look beautiful. So we're going to go through those three, and we'll work through them, and they kind of all run through the the whole of the passage, and I'll, I'll point out as we go through where we can see them. So firstly then, spiritual health is a team effort. Spiritual health is a team effort. So let's then have a look down at chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writes, you, however, Titus, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Now, that word that says teach is more commonly just a bog-standard word for speak or say. It's kind of used 300 times throughout the New Testament. It's just speaking about what is appropriate to sound doctrine. So I think it includes upfront teaching in the church, but it's kind of all everyday conversations that are going on. Paul wants Titus to keep on speaking what is appropriate to sound doctrine. So what's appropriate to sound doctrine is kind of what fits with it, what's fitting, what, what, what kind of joins with sound doctrine, healthy teaching. I don't know if you've ever had that um, frustrating moment when you're leaving the house and you're a bit, running a bit late and you desperately need to just grab a container on the way out, kind of a Tupperware or something like that, and, and you run into the house and you, you spot the perfect one and you, you grab it and then you suddenly think, but where is the lid? 
And you spend about the next 10 minutes grabbing every lid you possibly can. Which one fits? Which one's going to fit on it? And you eventually realize it's on the side and it wasn't in the You've got it. But you need the one that fits. And Paul is saying to Titus, it's like that with the Christian faith. You believe the doctrine, but you've got to have the life that fits with that, the life that connects, the life that joins up, because it's no use if you don't have that. If you're a Christian, there is a certain lifestyle character that fits with being a Christian. It's no use just living any way we please. We need to be working out what fits with this message of Jesus. So the idea is then in verse 1 that Titus is to be going around the church, speaking to people all the time in all of his conversations, whether up front or just generally with people, and keep on speaking about what fits with being a Christian. What, what is it? What lifestyle fits with that? So, so you can imagine Titus spending time with people in the congregation across a week in the, the churches in Crete. And you see, so he, he's there um, going out in the evening with some of the older men, and they're wanting to have a drink. And he, he's, he's talking about well, how, how is, what's appropriate, what fits with being a Christian, how much should we drink? What does it mean to be temperate? You see in verse 2. Or he goes round to see how one of the older ladies in the church is doing, and she always seems to know what's going on in the, the, with people's lives, and she's walking the, the tightrope the tight between sharing prayer requests and gossiping. And so he's kind of talking with her about what, what does it look like to, to live as a Christian? How do you walk that tightrope? Or he talks to a, a new mum after the, the service, and she's at her wit's end because her baby's not sleeping, and her husband is back late in the office, and she's asking for advice how to be kind in verse 5 or playing rugby with one of the younger guys on Saturday, and the ref keeps on making, in his view, bad decisions, and he's losing his temper and getting angry. And so he's talking about, well, what does it mean for a young man to be self-controlled? He's constantly having conversations with people all the time. What, what, does it fit, what lifestyle fits with being a Christian? The idea is, is that no matter who he's talking to, Titus is always to be looking out for the opportunity to talk about what fits with being a Christian. Now, I guess you might expect that from someone who's in church leadership. But I think the striking thing in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, is that this is not just for Titus. This is for everyone in the church to be getting involved in. So if you look down at, at verse 3, when he's, looking, he's talking to the, the older women, and at the, end, at the end of verse 3, he says, they are to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to live out a life that's fitting to the Christian faith. So it's not just Titus who's supposed to do that. The older women are supposed to be doing that with the younger women. And actually, if you then look down at verse 7, you'll see that Titus is supposed to be setting an example. So he's to set them an example by doing what's good. And one way is that in his teaching, he's to show, verse 8, soundness of speech. So his talking all the time in the congregation about what fits with being a Christian, well, that's an example of healthy speech that everyone else is to be following. So he's saying it's not just Titus, but the older women and actually everyone following his example in the church, talking constantly about what fits with being a Christian. In other words, it should be a standard part of conversations in a healthy church to keep on talking, keep on asking the question, what does it look like for us to live a life as Christians that fits with the message of the gospel? We're always to be talking with one another, working that out together. How do we live spiritually healthy lives? Because spiritual health is to be a team effort. Now, two of the, the sports I, I played most um, as I was growing up were um, tennis and football. And it's a very different dynamic between an individual sport right, and a team sport. Tennis is an individual sport. When you walk out onto the, the court, no one's there to help you. When things go wrong, you've got to work out what is going wrong. Coaching during a match, it's not allowed. 
And so that's what makes tennis, watching tennis quite frustrating because as you're sitting there watching, you can see that's wrong, they need to change that and they haven't worked out how to do it yet. There's no one to tell them. See, if you're watching it and the commentator with the, the benefit of a, a thousand replays and slow motion, they can say, well, he just needs to change this, change his back, backhand or she just needs to you know, be a bit more aggressive on, on the forehand. But she doesn't know because there's no one there to tell her. That's what an individual sport is like. They have to work it out for themselves. In contrast to that, though, football, it's a team sport. And if you're playing football, you constantly have your fellow um, teammates, the fans, the coach at halftime telling you, change this, change this, do this. This is how to play better. You can do better than that. This is what you need to change. A team sport, you have the benefit of others who are there to help you to say, this is how to do it. Keep on going. And Titus is saying in these verses here that, that to be a Christian, it's not an individual exercise. It's a team effort. We're not supposed to be individuals walking around on our own, trying to work out how to live the Christian life, what sort of lifestyle is fitting. We're supposed to be growing in godliness together as we speak to one another in the church, constantly asking the question, what is it that fits? What sort of lifestyle fits with being a Christian? It seems to be a pattern that the older here are helping the younger. So the older, mature Christians are particularly looking out for speaking to the younger ones. And so if I can put it in these terms, if you're here at church and you're an older, mature Christian man, I need you to help me. I need you to help me. I need you to help me work out what it is to live as a Christian, to, to know what fits with the gospel. But similarly, if you're here, you're a younger, less mature Christian man, then you need me. You need me to be speaking to you saying, this is what fits with being a Christian, because none of us are able to do it on our own. In fact, I'm thankful that I think this pattern of older, proactively speaking to younger, has been part of my church experience here at Christchurch Mayfair. I've been here for 12 years or so now, and I remember arriving as an 18-year-old student, and within the first week, an older guy at church had said, well, why don't we meet up and, and talk? And so I'm thankful for, for Richard, who did that with me, and since then, Dave, and student group leaders, and colleagues on the staff team, and now home group leaders, lots of people who are there constantly talking to me, saying, this is what it looks like to live as a Christian. And I hope that I've then been able to do the same to those who are younger. All of us need to be involved if we're to follow this template that Paul sets out for Titus. All of us need to be involved in looking out for how we can help others know what's fitting to, to live as a Christian. And also all of us need to be looking for others to help us do that. I guess at church, for lots of us, small groups are the place where that happens. If you're thinking for the, for the year ahead, what's a, a good way to get involved in that, then, then sign up for one of the, the small groups. But why not invite a Sunday school leader around your house for, for lunch afterwards? Or Scott would be delighted to say you can meet up with a student after um, when the term starts in, in the year to come. Because all of us need to be looking out for ways we can keep on speaking what is fitting with sound doctrine, how to live out our faith. So there, there's the first one. Spiritual health is a team effort. But then we move on to the, the second big theme that we find in, in this passage, which is that spiritual health is applied to our circumstances. Spiritual health is applied to our circumstances. So, so the bulk of the, the verses, Titus is to, to, uh, to be talking to five different groups of people. So you get the, the older women and the younger women, the older men and the younger men, and then you get the, the slaves, or I guess the closest would be employees for us today. So you get these five different groups of people. 
And you'll notice that the lists for each one are slightly different. Now, I think there's, there's two mistakes you can make when you look at it. One is to kind of universalize the list and say, well, these character traits, they're exclusively what every single older man and every single older woman must be particularly focusing on because that's the temptation they're going to face. As if, you know, verse 3, um, older women not to be addicted to much wine, as if it's the case that kind of every older woman across every culture in history ever has always been addicted to wine and needs to kind of not do that. I don't think he's, he's saying that. We're not supposed to universalize it. Because clearly from experience, there are older women or, who don't have that particular battle to face. So we're not supposed to universalize it and say, yeah, this is what every single one must fight for. But Paul's writing to churches that he knows in Crete, and he knows the Christians and the wider culture they're living in. And so he knows that the, the things that that particular group of people need to hear. So that's one mistake is to universalize it. But the other mistake then would be to flatten the list and then say, well, they're all basically interchangeable. The point of him addressing different groups of people and mentioning different character traits is to point out that our spiritual health is applied to our particular circumstances. Now, that might be really obvious, but I guess an employee is going to face particular challenges to live out the godliness of the gospel in their circumstances as an employee. And those challenges are going to be different from, for example, a younger woman who's a married stay-at-home mom. She's going to face different challenges to live out the gospel in her circumstances. So while you can say, I guess, every Christian ought to be self-controlled, and every Christian ought to be because it's a fruit of the Spirit... But that has to be worked out in our particular circumstances. A self-controlled employee might look like controlling your tongue, not talking back to your boss. Whereas a self-controlled stay-at-home mum might look like controlling anger at children who are being really naughty all the time. We have to apply it to our particular circumstances. And Paul wants the church to think that through. At different ages and stages of life, men and women are going to find focusing different aspects of godliness more challenging. And so Paul wants the church to address that, to keep on asking the question, what's it going to look like for me in my particular circumstances to live out the gospel? Now, the list isn't exhaustive. There's no word here to children, no word to single women, no um, word here to employers. So it's not an exhaustive list. It's just his five particular groups of people that he's trying to help think about what is fitting for living out the gospel. So let's very briefly have a look at what he says to, to the particular groups, a sentence or two on, on each. And we may find that 21st century Londoners face similar issues as we try to live out the gospel here. So verse 2, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. As those who perhaps would have been in that society in positions of particular respect... Titus is to remind them they're to be worthy of that respect. The way that they live is to be not immature in their Christian lives, but actually respected people. I guess there's a danger that some are getting a bit lukewarm in their faith, in their older age, slowing down in the Christian life. And Paul says, no, keep pressing on to be healthy in your faith, healthy in love, healthy in endurance, to keep on going as an older man, as a Christian. And then turns verse 3 to the older women. So he says this, likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. So it seems like some of the older women in these churches were getting a bit irreverent, treating God and the gospel lightly, much preferring to have their friends over for some gossip and some wine than actually trying to disciple others in the congregation. And he's saying to them, well, you need to, to change that, to live out the gospel, that's not fitting. And particularly then to help the younger women. 
So it says, verse 4 then, they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands. Now, perhaps as we read this, this is the one where the, the alarm bells are, are kind of ringing a bit. Is this the patriarchy? Is Paul trying to turn Crete into kind of Victorian Britain with the women kind of locked up at home, looking after the kids, doing whatever the husband says? Well, of course, we need to look at what the whole Bible says about marriage, and we don't have time to go through that in detail now, but feel free to grab me afterwards. But we see back in Genesis that marriage is a good gift of God, where husband and wife are equal in complementing one another. And in Proverbs 31, the woman is not just sort of left at home, the, the noble wife in Proverbs 31. She's running a business, probably the breadwinner of the house. In Song of Songs, you get a poem of passionate, romantic love. In Ephesians 5, you see the ordering in a marriage relationship to reflect Christ in the church. In 1 Corinthians 7, you get singleness elevated in the service of Christ. In Revelation 21, you see marriage is only temporary. It's going to be fulfilled in the new creation. So in the broader biblical overview, Titus is calling married younger women to live that out. Now, interestingly, I read earlier in the, in the summer um, this book, which hopefully there's a picture will come up on the screen. Um, the book's called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution by author Louise Perry. Now, she's a, a self-described um, feminist, journalist, campaigner against domestic violence. I don't think she's a Christian in any sense of the word, as far as I can tell, but it's a fascinating book where she basically argues that the sexual revolution, which has taken place in, in the West since the 70s, has been a disaster for women in lots of ways. And one of the ways that she, she talks about in her chapter is that people think marriage is kind of this old-fashioned relationship that needs to be torn down in order to, to liberate women. But she writes in this book, well, you can't be more wrong than that. We need to bring marriage back. She says that the, the current culture basically serves the, the interests of men. And she, she, talks, she says this. Let me just read a little quote. She says, in order to change the kind of structure where basically men are out of control, she says, we would need a technology that discourages short-termism in male sexual behavior, protects the economic interests of mothers, and creates a stable environment for the raising of children. And we do already have such a technology, even if it's old, clunky, and prone to periodic failure. It's called marriage. And so there she is, as a non-Christian feminist, looking at the culture today, and she's saying... I think we want to go back to, to, to marriage, saying the Bible has a better blueprint. And Paul here is calling younger women, married women, to live that out. And elsewhere, he'll call husbands to do the same. So there, the, the emphasis for the, for the younger women who are married with children is to live out this blueprint the Bible has for marriage. Then we move on to the next group of people in verse um, 6 similarly encourage the young men to be self-controlled and Titus himself is to be the example again self-control that the men seem out of control with whether it's anger or sex or whatever the men are out of control and he says no that doesn't fit with the gospel you need to be under control and then finally verse 9 and 10 he turns to talk about the slaves the employees I guess again closest today Verse 9, teach the slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show they can be fully trusted. Again, the, the big point for, for the employees is be trustworthy and respectful to your boss. That's what being a Christian is going to look like as an employee. Use your time and your energy while at work to serve the, the person, the employer you're, you're working for, and do that respectfully. So again, that's a very quick run-through of all the details, but the big point, big point running through it is, 
Spiritual health is applied to our circumstances. If you're employed, if you're older or younger, male or female, married or not married, employer or employee, whatever it is, we need to apply spiritual health to our particular circumstances. Because at different stages and ages of life, we're going to find different things challenging. And Paul wants the church to be addressing that. To keep asking the question, what's it going to look like for an employee, for a single lady, for a stay-at-home mum, for an older man, for a younger man? What's it going to look like to live out the gospel? And I guess that's why, as well as having a Sunday gathering, which everyone is welcome to come to, here at church there'll also be a women's ministry and a men's ministry and a student ministry and a youth group and a catch-up for those who are medical professionals. And if you come to the monthly prayer meeting, we often pray for a particular kind of group of people in the church working in a different industry. Because we're acknowledging the fact that as Titus 2 shows us, We've got to keep thinking through as a church what it looks like to live healthy spiritual lives in our particular circumstances. Because the challenges are different for a 16-year-old boy at secondary school or a 19-year-old female university student or a stay-at-home mum or a CEO or a retired man. It's going to be different. So we have to encourage people to be involved, to keep on thinking through those questions. So again, as you think about the year that's coming up ahead, A good question to be thinking about is, how am I going to be able to think about what it is to live as a Christian in my particular circumstances? Whether it's joining one of those ministry areas particularly for you, or whether it's just trying to find someone you can talk that through with. What's it going to look like for me in my particular circumstances to live as a Christian? There are loads of younger people at the evening service, the six o'clock service, who would love the wisdom of people in this room about what it's going to look like for them to live out the Christian faith in their particular stage of life. And they would love, they'd love our help to do that. And if you're sitting here thinking, well, there's no, there's no particular area of church that's going to help me in my circumstances, well, then maybe that means we need to start one. We need to start thinking about how we can do that and help each other to live out spiritual health in our particular circumstances. Because spiritual health is applied to our circumstances. Then finally, uh, point number three, spiritual health is to make Jesus look beautiful. Spiritual health is to make Jesus look beautiful. And again, you see that running through the whole passage. So if you look down at verse 5, after talking to the younger woman, he says, so that no one will malign the word of God. Or then again in verse 8, after Titus' example, to the younger men, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. And again, chapter 2, verse 10, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Three different ways, but the big point of why we have to keep on talking about what fits with with living as a Christian, the the reason that's driving all of it is that we can make Jesus look beautiful as individuals and as a church. Now, of course, the, the Christian gospel, the message of Jesus, is itself stunningly beautiful, It's stunningly beautiful. God's love didn't search out that the most worthy, the most deserving, the most beautiful people to reward them with the unending delight of eternal life. I mean, that's what you and I would do if we're looking to throw a party. We look for who's the the most worthy, who who are the people who, um, who are most deserved to come. But that's not what God does in the gospel. In the gospel, God searches out the unworthy, the undeserving, those who are not beautiful. That's why in the book, he constantly refers to God and Jesus as our saviour. Three times already, Jesus and God have been called our saviour. And three more times in the book, Jesus and God will be called our saviour. Six short times, six times in this short letter, our saviour. 
Because the Christian gospel is the most beautiful story of rescue. I mean, our culture is obsessed with rescue stories. That's why Marvel can keep producing thousands of superhero movies and people keep watching them because we're obsessed with rescue. But the Christian message is one of the most beautiful rescue story you could imagine, that God would send his own precious son into the world to give his life to rescue people who didn't deserve it and to welcome us into his eternal glory of heaven. But not only does God forgive unworthy, undeserving people for all of our ugliness and failures and offers us a place in the unending delight of heaven, but in searching out those people, his love has the power to transform and to recreate us bit by bit to be more beautiful in his sight. There's an old hymn that kind of captures this idea. I reckon it's one of the most, one of the most beautiful lines, I think. The, the, song, the, the line from the song, my song is love unknown. The, the verse goes, my song is love unknown. My saviour's love to me. Love to the loveless shown, that they might lovely be. That's the message of the Christian gospel. The Savior's love has come to those who don't deserve it, who don't deserve his love. And in so loving them, he changes us to be more lovely. This Christian gospel, that the message of Jesus is itself stunningly beautiful and nothing can change that. But the way that we live as Christians has a, has a great power to, to show what other people think about Jesus. Because the way, that's the way they often first encounter something of the message. So chapter 2, verse 10, when it says, make the, the teaching about God our Savior attractive, it's using the language of clothing or, or makeup. It's the Greek word from which we get kind of cosmetics today. Make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Because as we all know, the clothes we wear, the, the makeup we put on, it can either highlight the beauty of the one wearing it or it can detract from it, even be off-putting. Whenever the, uh, the kind of Oscars or other award ceremonies come round, um, you always get the, the stars, which are you know, some, supposedly some of the most beautiful, handsome people in the world. Very talented people who spend thousands and thousands of pounds on makeup and clothing to go to these award ceremonies, trying to look as glamorous as possible. And every time, the next day, as you scroll through the newspaper, there's always lots of articles talking about the, the award ceremony, who won, which film was the best, or which song was the best. But there's also always one, one article with, which has a, a headline, something like this. Did you see what he, she was wearing? There's always one article that says that, you know, back in 2010. Why was Lady Gaga wearing a, uh, why was she wearing a, a dress made out of raw meat? Why, why was she wearing that? And so no one's talking about her song. No one's talking about the film. They're, they're going, what on earth were they wearing? What were they thinking? Because the clothing is kind of detracted from the, the beauty, the, the talent that's supposed to be on display. Because clothing can either highlight beauty or it can distract from it. And nothing changes the fact that the message of the gospel is stunningly beautiful. But the way Christians live can either highlight that beauty or detract from it, be off-putting to other people. It's possible for the way that we live to be like ugly clothing so that all people can see is our ungodliness, not the beauty of Jesus and his gospel. So that in chapter 2, verse 5, people are maligning, talking badly about God's word. You can pick up the language of the, the chapter. You can imagine in Crete, friends and family and colleagues who aren't Christians going, oh, look at him. He just ha always has too much to drink. He's always getting angry. And oh, her, she's always talking badly about people. And them, they're always rude to their boss, aren't they? And if that's what being a Christian is like, I don't want to know anything about it. If Christians don't live out the godliness of the gospel, if we live ungodly lives, people will take the name of Christian and just think, oh, it's not worth anything. It's a disaster. 
You and I don't want to be people who live lives like that so that others look and say, Jesus is of no value. He has no beauty at all. Instead, we want our lives to be like beautiful clothing, highlighting the stunning beauty of Jesus himself. As chapter 2, verse 10 says, making the teaching about God our Savior attractive. And actually, it seems to be the case when you look in history that, that the early church in the first and second centuries did, to some extent, follow Paul's command. I mean, lots of historians, even secular ones, observed that it was the godly lives of ordinary Christians that caused the church to grow and grow and grow in those early centuries. So, so one of them, uh, Rodney Stark, has written a book called The Triumph of Christianity. And he, he writes that in the midst of the squalor and misery and illness and anonymity of ancient cities... Christianity provided an island of mercy and security. And he goes on to highlight how Christians were generous with their money, basically running a miniature welfare state in the midst of the Roman Empire, supporting people in need. How Christians were the ones who were caring for the sick when the great plagues came. They were the ones who were caring for people, staying behind, risking their lives. Talks about how it's the equality of women in contrast to the highly patriarchal society where women were reduced to basically second-class citizens, but not in the Christian church. And actually rescuing babies who had just been abandoned to die. Again and again, he cites example after example of the ways that Christians in their individual daily lives had showcased the beauty of the gospel. And that's what attracted people in to come and see and find out more about Jesus. Those things weren't being done by any major institutional church or denomination. Those didn't exist. It was just ordinary Christians in small churches living out that godliness and in so doing, displaying the stunning beauty of Jesus. And we want to hope and pray that as our lives work out what's fit and appropriate for the gospel, as we live out that godliness in 21st century London, that our friends and colleagues and neighbours and family members might look at our lives and not see ugliness that detracts from the beauty of Jesus, but might see a life that makes the teaching of him beautiful and attractive. We have the opportunity to do that. And so we need to keep on talking to one another in the church as a team going, what's it going to look like for us to live that out in our particular circumstances? So let's pray that all of us will get involved in doing that. And let's pray that we'll keep working hard to apply the gospel to our circumstances. And above all, pray that our families and workplaces would display the stunning beauty of Jesus, making his teaching attractive. Let's pray for that now. Father God, thank you so much for the stunning beauty of Jesus and his gospel. Thank you that he came into the world to give his life, to die for those who are unworthy, undeserving, those who were not beautiful. But thank you for the power of his love that transforms people like that, people like us, to increasingly become more and more beautiful in your sight. As we look forward to the hope of heaven, we pray that now we would live lives that do make the teaching of Jesus attractive. That as people look at Christchurch Mayfair and as people look at our individual lives, we might make the teaching of Jesus attractive as we live out a life that is fitting to the gospel. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.